I'm Dina Ladd, and welcome to Wiser Conversations, a podcast that features women in science, entrepreneurship, and research. Welcome to Wiser Conversations. Joining me today is Carolyn Henry. She's Dean of the College of Veterinary Medicine at the University of Missouri in Columbia. Welcome, Carolyn. Thanks for having me. You have such a fascinating background. You were an oncology researcher, then you earned your Doctor of Veterinary Medicine and have a Master of Science degree. So as you were working and earning your degrees, did you have a clear path to where you wanted to be or what you wanted to do? Uh, I always thought I had a clear path. <laughs> what, what I didn't realize is that it was going to have a lot of turnoffs on it. So um, I, you know, I, I was always very committed to the next thing. I didn't really know that I wanted to do oncology, at least early on. Um, it was when I got out into practice and found that those are the cases that really interested me the most. And then I, I decided to go back and um, become a specialist in that area. Um, and then that led into understanding how work that we do in animals with cancer often has implications for humans with cancer. And so it can be a, a very fascinating field where we can share our findings and, and improve treatments and diagnostics for all species by working together. And then if you ask me if I had a clear path to uh, becoming the Dean of a College of Veterinary Medicine, that was never, ever, ever on my radar. So um, in that regard, I'd say it was not the clearest path. But I, I remember you had told me once when they approached you to be the Dean, you kind of did a little soul searching. And so what so kind of what went through your mind and what were the steps that you took to make that decision? Because it's, it's a huge decision. And I assume also being a, a woman and being a Dean of a veterinary school, I mean, that's, um, you know, that's a big, big ask. And I don't know how many female deans there are at veterinary schools, but I assume um, maybe not as many as males. Yeah, we're still very much in the minority, but I I don't think it's a career that I would have sought had I not had people suggest to me that I should think about it. And I spent a lot of time saying, no, I shouldn't. And then um, I got asked to apply for a deanship and um, decided to go ahead and kind of put my foot in the water and it was really transformative because I could visualize myself in that position. And um, once I could visualize that, I began to think about all the things that I could really have an impact on in a way that I couldn't do as you know a clinician in a teaching hospital. And so um, it, it definitely took other people being able to see it before I could. Um, but once I got into it, it's, it's an absolute natural for me because it allows me to really connect dots. And that's kind of what my career's been about is, is trying to get people together, whether it be clinically or in research or in teaching, um, and to bring together expertise in ways that makes a real difference. And that's, that's kind of what deans do. And that's, that's a lot of fun. And so what advice do you have for young women um, who are thinking about the research field or, or find themselves in the research field? Um, what, what, you know, should they do or what advice would you have for them? Well, I, you know, I think um, 
man or woman, the first thing is you got to find your passion and what you're doing. If, if what you're doing is something you're passionate about, it doesn't really seem like work anymore. So that's the first key I would say. Um, you know, as far as being a woman in research and in science, um, I think the opportunities are there. I think we need to have confidence in ourselves and we don't always have those role models that we can see as examples of, of where we wanna be. So sometimes we're kind of making it up as we go along of, of how do we get to that point. Um, but you know, ultimately I think it's all about having the passion, the skill, the work ethic and the integrity. And if you've got those things, you can do anything you want to do and your, your mentors may not look like you, um, but sooner or later we'll get there. Right. Definitely. Well, not our, it's impressive enough that you're the Dean of the veterinary school, but you also have a dual appointment with the university of Missouri school of medicine. Um, so tell us about your dual role and how has that helped you think about research? Yeah, when I first came to University of Missouri, I was recruited um, by the vet school to really develop the oncology program. And, and I tried to reach out to the human hospital. And in fact, some of the first people I met when I interviewed were oncologists from Ellis Fischel Cancer Center. And um, I was a little surprised, of course, this was back in the, the late 90s, but I was a little surprised that there wasn't more oncology education on the campus as a whole, given that we had a vet school and a med school. And so um, I, I initially had conversations about developing education for uh, veterinarians and physicians in comparative oncology. So we could take our shared experiences and, and learn more about cancer biology overall. And um, that grew into a, a dual appointment in the Department of Internal Medicine in uh, the School of Medicine. And it was, it was mainly so that we could make those connections between the two. And that's something that I, I think has grown through the years. And I'm very proud of the fact that this is a university that recognizes the importance of translational medicine, comparative medicine, and really respects the expertise that all different people bring to the table, um, whether you're an engineer or a sociologist or a journalist, um, there's something that you're going to bring to that conversation that's unique. And when we get all those perspectives, um, I think we can make a much bigger difference and certainly have a lot more fun. Well, you know, having said that, it makes me think of um, the next gen um, effort that's being the building that's being built on the campus and bringing those different departments together. So can you tell us a little bit about NextGen? Yeah, so the, the NextGen vision is, has evolved over many years. Um, you know, it was initially the idea was how can we bring together researchers and clinicians to make real discoveries that are going to have an impact on health? And the initial areas that we really focused on were oncology or cancer, neurological diseases, and cardiovascular health. And in all three of those areas, we have strengths across campus in many different places. So, you know, in cancer care, that's one I've already mentioned. We've got the Alice Fischel Cancer Center. We've got um, basic science researchers that understand the biology of cancer. We have imaging, we have a research reactor 
factor so we can do um, different kinds of imaging of tumors to show that getting a response to a therapy or we're not getting a response to a therapy. So really bringing resources together around campus as well as expertise from around campus and having people in the same building. I don't think unless you have those moments each day when you're passing someone in the hall or you're having a conversation over coffee, you miss out on the strength of having all that expertise on one campus. And so in in neurology, for example, I know we've talked before about the fact that my grandfather was a physician who died of Lou Gehrig's disease, and that was, you know, almost 50 years ago. And I'm, I'm frustrated that we haven't come further with therapies for that disease, but where else to do that than a place where we've got veterinary neurologist who understands that dogs that get a disease of neuromuscular system degenerative disease is the same as what we see in people with Lou Gehrig's disease. And so working together, are there ways that we can develop gene therapy to try to, to address that and really make a difference? In cardiovascular disease, our cats and dogs and other species get the same heart diseases that people do. And so how can we intervene? And so that, that was the initial idea, really focusing on those three areas. But then it became apparent that that leaves a lot of the campus out. And there are a lot of other things that can be brought into that. For instance, in the cancer area, it's just as important that you have someone from journalism or someone in health communications that can convey your message if you need to change a behavior that, that uh, like smoking, if we want to look at smoking cessation, we have to think about the sociology of that. How do we get the word out to the media so that they can reach the public that needs to hear the message? And so we've really broadened the idea of NextGen in, in that we realize that it's not just three colleges or two colleges involved in this. We've got 12 colleges and schools that will really provide people, expertise, shared resources. And so it's a much more efficient way to do this. And it's a a way that was really going to make us stand out from other universities across the country. And I know that the vet school is doing such amazing research, like you touched on the um, ALS, um, you know, the neurological research being done, but what are some other areas such as infectious disease? And I know you've had some recent findings dealing with COVID-19. Yeah, it's interesting. I I was looking at a, a email communication that I had two years ago, well, 2018, with someone from the research office talking about wanting to bring in more expertise in infectious disease and how there was this guy named Dr. Fauci who was talking about being prepared for uh, a pandemic. And it, it really struck me the other day of, you know, the, how true that has become. And, and fortunately, we did hire the infectious disease experts that we were hoping to at the time. And so, you know, in veterinary medicine, we have a tendency to look at infectious disease and pandemics regularly from a a, a herd health standpoint, wildlife standpoint. And a lot of these diseases come from animals. They they may have been sourced there in the first place, whether that's a, you know, a a bat in some of these cases like Ebola and, and potentially with COVID. And so I think understanding how diseases affect different species, how they can be transmitted, 
and how we can stop that is just absolutely critical to the health of people, the health of our food supply, and, you know, as we're finding out, the health of our economy even. Mm -hmm, definitely. And so I have to ask you the question that we're all wondering about is, can animals get COVID-19? Can our animals, our dogs and our cats that we love so much um, get the disease? They can. And, I, you know, we worry just like everybody else with people coming into the clinic, we've really had to take um, precautionary measures. We're more concerned that it's an animal um, owned by a high risk person or someone that may be carrying COVID that the animal may, may transmit it on their fur, you know, to people in our hospital. And so um, we've had measures in place since the start of this where we don't have the owners come into the hospital if it's a high risk or someone that's known to be COVID-19 positive. Um, we do a decontamination um, of, of the pet. And so that's a human health concern, but we've also seen a few examples, not here, but a few examples reported of cats um, catching COVID-19. Um, there's been a, a dog that was positive for COVID-19. Certainly cats can get it from their owners. Um, it looks like there could be cat to cat transmission as well, at least experimentally. Don't know if that's, that's happening naturally. And then you may have seen the stories of the, the larger cats um, in the Bronx Zoo that were positive for COVID-19 and actually had some respiratory signs. So um, our indications are that yes, they, they can um, be affected by it. Uh, not, does not seem to be to the same severity, although um, cats have had more symptoms and ferrets are another species. Um, and, and in fact, one that we study for respiratory and, and viral diseases for that very reason. Okay, I have to ask you, you have 10 kids, you <laughs> have a very busy career. I know you're very involved in the community. So give us your advice on balancing it all. I don't know that I balance it, um, but I just try to always have fun with it. So, um, you know, one, one of my sayings that I, I love is, um, anytime my husband and I get ready to go somewhere, our, our saying is we're either going to have a good time or a good story. And if we do it right, we'll have both. And, you know, I think if you go at it at that attitude, so it, when things really start going wrong, we look at each other and say, well, we're going to have a good stories. So, um, you can't always balance it, but you can, you can, you can affect how you respond to things. And so I think that's, what's important when I'm going through a hard time. I just take a moment and say, well, this is an opportunity for me to learn something. What is it I'm supposed to learn from this experience? And, and I think when you do that, it kind of puts it all in perspective. Well, I think you answered my final question, which is <laughs> what challenge or obstacle in your life ended up creating a great opportunity? Yeah, I've had a few of those. And, and you know, I think probably one of the first ones I had career-wise is that when I went into practice, I had decided that out of vet school, I wanted to go into practice with somebody that had been in the business for a long time and could show me the business aspects of veterinary medicine. I didn't feel very strong in that regard. Um, and so that's how I made my decision. I went into a one person practice with someone that had owned the practice for about 25 years so that he could teach me the ropes. And within three weeks of starting that position, he had a, a severe injury and ended up having an amputation of his leg and never came back to work. And so here I was uh, 
planning to get all this knowledge passed on to me from this gentleman and it ended up, I just got my feet put in the fire and, and figured it out as I went along. But, you know, had I not had that experience, I don't think I would have the confidence to take the next step in my career. And so I, I think all things considered that ended up being probably one of the more impactful things that happened to me in my career. And it ended up being a positive, not, you know, obviously I wouldn't wish harm on anyone, but um, just the, the response to those types of situations, I think can really shape who you become. Well, Carolyn, thank you. I mean, the research that's being done at the vet school is so important and um, the update that you gave us, I really appreciate it. And I really appreciate your time today. No, I appreciate you. Thanks for all you do with, with these types of podcasts and conferences. Thank you for joining us for Wiser Conversations. This podcast is a program of the Missouri Cures Education Foundation. Find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. And don't forget to rate our podcast. Dan English is the producer of Wiser Conversations. Please join me on July 8th as I sit down with Dr. Jennifer Silva, pediatric cardiologist of St. Louis Children's Hospital. Hear how she's created an amazing device that creates a hologram that floats over her patients as she performs surgery. I hope you can join us. Until then, stay well.